All right. Um, tonight, for this last uh, CBS of the semester, uh, we're going to take a break. I put it in the group me this um, that we're going to take a break from our parable series. I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. One is that I doubled up last time we met. I don't know if you remember. We covered two parables instead of one. We did lost sheep and lost coin. I initially had those separated in different weeks, and that was real dumb because they said the same thing. And so I covered them both. Uh, yeah, in one. So uh, I had that means I had an open week to do something else. And then that led me to the second reason, which is um, I wanted to go away from that. It's because we're in the we're in the Advent season, and um, this is like the only CBS we have in the Advent season. It began last Sunday. Advent runs through Christmas Eve, and uh, Christmas Day begins a new a new season. Uh, so I thought we might take a week since we, we had a break in our, our normal programming to think on a passage that might help us think about the Advent season, which is a, a season that I, I'll say more about, but it's at rock bottom. Advent should remind us of just the most basic truths of the gospel. And so that's what our focus is going to be tonight, and I'll have you open a passage in just a minute. Um, well, go ahead and do it. It's, we're going to be in uh, Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 2. Um, and we're going to think about hope in Christ. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe if you thought we're going to think about an Advent passage of Scripture, you might have expected we would still be in one of the Gospels, maybe one of the birth narratives, some passages like that, dealing with the birth and the first coming of Christ, His coming into the world as a fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies and, and, and et cetera. But Advent, first of all, and you may know this, and that's okay if you do. Hope you do. It's a good rehearsal. Advent is 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 a word that simply means coming or appearance. It's the, the Latin word adventus, which means coming or appearance. And um and I think while it is appropriate during Advent to think about the, the birth of Christ and the first coming of Christ in that way, the first Advent of Christ, as it were, the Advent season uh, in these that, we, that we celebrate this time of year leading up to, to Christmas Day, counter to what you may assume of this time of year, is first and foremost... Um, the season of the second coming, the season of the second coming of Christ, the second advent of Christ that we still await. And it makes sense if you think about it. We Baptists don't think about it very much, but if we were of some other denominations, we might think of it more appropriately. But if you think about it, the, the, the church year follows the life of Christ. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but like so Christmas Day, you might think, is, is kickoff, right? Christmas Day, birth of Christ. And then you, you, you move through, you might have heard of the season of Epiphany. That's going to be the celebration. Remember the, the wise men coming and Gentiles coming and bringing gifts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you move on through the year, and some people observe Lent, which is going to remember... The, the sufferings and the, the, the hardships of Christ during His earthly life, which is going to lead up to Good Friday and the cross and Easter Sunday and the resurrection. 
50 days later, somewhere along the end of May, 1st of June, you're going to have Pentecost Sunday, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then after Pentecost Sunday, you got like almost six months of nothing. You got all these, all these Christian holidays right there in the first half of the year, and then you got a long bit of nothing. And that's called ordinary time. It's what we're, what we're in. It's what the church calls it, ordinary time. From Pentecost Sunday, uh, it, 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 that ordinary time mimics what we're in right now. We're just in ordinary time where the Spirit has come, and we're just living life, in, 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 in this Christian life in the world with the Holy Spirit, waiting what? Advent, which is the next thing on the calendar, the second coming of Christ. And so... Um, when, when that is what the Advent season is all about. It's the season where we are. We, it's where we're in ordinary time, but we're sort of, we're not in ordinary time, we're in Advent now, but ad, ordinary time bleeds into this Advent season in which you are still sort of, the whole point of this season of the year in the church would be to just think, think more deliberately on the hardships of life, the, the sufferings of life, the injustices of life, Take a sobering look at the world. Take a sobering look at your own heart. But just think. But like. Uh, but think about the hardship and the sufferings of the world. But think about them in light of Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to return, and He's going to right every wrong. Um, that may seem. Um, and, and, and you're supposed to think of last things. But that's funny. The the medieval Catholic Church. The the four Sundays in Advent, their, their four themes of the Advent season leading up to Christmas Day were death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And Christmas Day. Um, but but, but, so we, but we're, that's, we're supposed to be putting our minds on the last things and thinking about what life is like now and the struggles and the hardships, but Christ is coming again um, leading up to Christmas Day. That may seem backwards it may seem backwards feeling to think about all these weeks leading up to to christmas to be thinking about um the second coming of christ when you got christmas lights and christmas trees and christmas music all over the place um but i love and if you've been here if you've been in our college ministry for a few years you've probably heard me read this by fleming rutledge it's what she says about about that very thing she says about Advent, she says, Does Advent run backwards? The movement from Advent to Christmas, the movement is from the second coming to the first coming. It doesn't seem to make sense. The season begins with the last things in Advent, and it ends with the Nativity in Bethlehem. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Not really, she says. She says, it turns out to be theologically profound. If we began with the nativity and then moved to the final judgment, we would be so softened up by that little baby in the manger that we wouldn't be able to take the second coming of Christ in power seriously. The solemnity and awe do not lie in the fact that the baby becomes the eternal judge. What strikes us to the heart is this, the eternal judge, very God of very God, 
creator of the worlds, the Alpha and the Omega, has become that little baby. That's how what we're in right now leads us to Christmas Day. And it's in that way that Advent's focus on the second coming of Christ helps us in more ways than one. Uh, first of all, it, it helps us to restore the wonder of Christmas, that the Alpha and the Omega has become that little baby for us and for our salvation. It helps us to remember who exactly was born on that day. But second, as, as, as during Advent, we're to be taking careful stock of and a sobering look at the hardships and the sufferings and the injustices of life, we not only remember that He's coming again to right all those wrongs and to bring justice and righteousness, but also as Christmas is approaching, we remember that He's already come once and He's reigning now. He's reigning now until that day that He comes again and restores every wrong. Uh, Fleming Rutledge, same lady that wrote that what I just read to you, she also note, noted that in, throughout church history, uh, the church is often considered three advents. One advent is his first, first physical coming, uh, the virgin birth, right? The second coming is not what we often talk about is the second coming. The second would be when he came by his Holy Spirit. And so his ongoing presence with us by his word and spirit is like a second advent leading to a final advent, which is his second physical return, right? Um, and so we're going to look at this passage in Titus 2 that I love not just because of the simple but powerful gospel truth it teaches, but also for today because it captures, I think, those three senses of Advent. This is a, by the way, this is a passage that, uh, and, a, and a message that we looked at, a few of you may have been here, but I noted, I noted that we looked at this passage um, almost a year ago during the Advent season here, but I think it was after graduation was over and y'all had already gone home. So a few of you may have been in town when we looked at this, and if you, it may sound familiar. But if not, I think most of you didn't, we didn't, you weren't here for that. I thought we'd look at it again tonight. This is a text that I think about every Advent season, and I love it because of the simplicity of it. It presents so simply the most basic truths of the Christian faith the ones that we need to get in our bones, the ones that we need to become instinctive in the way we think in our thoughts about the gospel. Um, I think this, uh, it, it mirrors those three, three aspects of Advent because it's going to remind us of what Jesus has already done for us in his first Advent. He's gonna re, it's going to remind us of what he's doing now in the present time by his word and spirit and also what we look forward to at the second Advent when he returns. So, um, yeah, hope we have in Jesus. So Titus 2 11 to 14 um, is what we're going to read in just a moment. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you what we're going to think about. Um, he's going he's to describe how complete a salvation Jesus has brought, and we're going to think about salvation past, present, and future. That's the three points, salvation past, present, and future. In other words, there is a salvation that he has already accomplished for us fully. There's an aspect of salvation that he is now accomplishing right now in us. And there's also an even greater aspect of salvation that Christ will bring to us when he returns. So that being said, salvation past, present, and future. Something he's already done for us, something now he's doing in us, something he will bring to us. Titus 2, 11 to 14. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, the advent of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are, for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Lord, that, that is your uh, beautiful gospel in, 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 in short form. And uh, we believe that it is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And, and again, we never tire of asking every time we come to this because it is what it is. We wouldn't dare come to it without asking for your help and, and, and for the eyes to see the truth in it and minds to understand it and hearts to embrace it and love it and wills to obey it. We, 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 our eyes are our eyes and minds and hearts are uh, feeble and weak without your help, blind without your eyes to see. So would you give us those things? Give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us in the Word. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so I'm going to lay. I'm going to. I've already laid out the things I want us to see in this. Those three aspects of salvation. Um, I, I hope these are truths that you've heard a thousand times already. And uh, here's a thousand and one. Um, so let's think first about salvation past. That's what, he, that's what he begins with in this passage. I, I'll say this. Certainly all, all of the aspects of salvation that, I, that Jesus gives that I mentioned, they are all equally definite realities. They're definite realities. It's not like just because Jesus has not yet come back that we're just kind of wishy-washy. Maybe it's going to happen. No, it's a definite reality. So what I'm, when I, when I, they're, they're all so equally definite. But this first one, salvation past, this first is unique among the, among the other two because in the sense that unlike the other two that we're going to think about, present and future, this aspect we already now are in full and complete possession of. We're in full, complete possession, possession of it. Um, and, of course, I'm referring to salvation from the penalty of our sins. That's, that's the aspect of salvation past. So the Apostle Paul begins these verses by reminding us of what Jesus has already accomplished for the salvation of everyone who puts their hope and trust in Him. So he begins in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Okay, now Paul is not saying, despite initial appearances in that verse, that literally all people will be saved. I mean, you might say, well, it says salvation for all people. He's not saying that because that would run completely contrary to the testimony of the rest of Scripture, even things that Paul himself wrote. Paul's not stupid. Paul is adamant throughout all of his letters, and the rest of Scripture agrees with him, that no one is saved apart from explicit faith in Jesus Christ. You know his name. You know who he is. You know what he did. You know who you are. You know your need. You repent. You put your faith in him. That's how a person is saved. That's how Paul himself, the same guy who wrote this, wrote Ephesians 2, by grace through faith we've been saved. The Scripture is also clear that also links up with here, that 
everyone who does believe will be saved. Jesus himself said in John that this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone, all who believe, all who look and believe. So when we read Paul say in Titus 2.11 that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, we shouldn't assume that he had a momentary lapse in thinking or that he couldn't remember what Scripture taught or he couldn't remember what he had already told the Ephesians. Instead, we should understand this, bringing salvation for all people, to be shorthand for all who believe, all who are trusting in Jesus Christ. If you were here this past Sunday, you know that this is not the only time that Paul has said something like this. Uh, we were just in Romans 5. And do you remember Romans 5.18, which we saw on Sunday? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification for all men. Now, I explained this on Sunday. I know some of you probably weren't here, but some people look at that verse. Justification in life for all men. Some people look at that verse and, and think, well, all men in the first part literally means all men. Condemnation for all men. Well, that's literally true. So wouldn't it mean the same thing in the second half of the sentence? Justification in life for all men. So you're consistent between in the same verse, all in all. But Paul is using, we saw it, Paul was using shorthand in that uh, uh, to, 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 because we looked at the verse right before it, which says, those who receive the free gift. That qualifies the all in the justification in life. He's, he, what he's done in that verse is created two categories of people, in Adam and in Christ. And the representative uh, of each of those covenants works on behalf of those in those covenants. It affects all people within that category. So yes, all people without exception are condemned, but not, not all people without exception, but all people who repent and believe are justified and have life. That's what he means in Romans 5. Similarly, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam all die. All in Christ will live. That's precisely what he means in Titus 2, 11. And what do, what do all those, according to this, what do all those who trust in Jesus Christ receive? Well, first and foremost, they receive salvation from the penalty of our sins. This is a reality that's already happened. Something that is true of you right now, you have fully in your possession right now. If you grew up in church, this is like the, it's probably the 300,000th time you've heard this. I know I'm not telling you anything new. But I also know through just being a college pastor and through being a part of your life and, and Katie through talking to people, me talking to people, I know that so many of you still struggle with deep anxiety over whether or not your sins are forgiven, even after you've trusted Christ. There's a reason God in His mercy and His grace has put you in a church where you hear the same things over and over again, that He has fully paid for all your sins. He's fully paid for all your sins. He's fully paid for all your sins. The penalty is removed. It is fully your possession right now if you're trusting in Jesus. And you know if you are or not. <laughs> you know it. And even though none of us has yet stood before the throne of God and witnessed with our own eyes or audibly heard with our own ears 
His pronouncement of forgiveness. The verdict has already been handed down because Jesus has completed all that is necessary for our forgiveness. Look again at what he says in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. The grace of God has appeared. It's appeared. That's a past tense reality. And that word translated appeared means made visible. God's grace was made visible. And the passage, as the passage continues, it becomes undeniably clear that God's grace appeared and became visible in the face of Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do for us when he appeared as the manifestation of God's grace for us? To answer that question, look at the first words of verse 14. He gave, who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us from the moment he was born to the moment he yielded up his spirit on the cross to his resurrection from the dead, he gave himself for us. And that for us means in our place, instead of us, as our substitute before God. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. That was God's grace appearing to us, making, being made visible to us in Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? Because of the debt, the debt we owe because of our sin. We actually owe a double debt to God. A double debt. We owe First of all, we owe the debt of a perfectly obedient and righteous life. We also owe a debt of punishment because we have failed to render him the first debt of, of, of obedience. And so when Jesus gave himself for us, it was to pay both of those debts. Everyone who would trust in him, trust in what he did, trusting in his works to, for, to fulfill the first debt and in his sacrifice to fulfill the second when we, when we trust in Him, there's nothing left to be done. I mean, for us to have the complete forgiveness of our sins, it's already been done. Colossians 1.14 says, In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have it now if we're trusting in Christ alone. That's an aspect of salvation that is already now an accomplished reality in the sense that it's a blessing that we now fully possess. We will never be more forgiven than you are right now. Like you will never, you won't be more forgiven in heaven than you are at CBS right now. In what way would your forgiveness increase? Your, your, your righteous standing place is based on his righteousness, not yours. His is already perfect, right? Christ has already earned it. That salvation passed. We've already been saved from the penalty of our sins. There's no greater possession on earth than that. But that's not all. There's another aspect of our salvation. If you're trusting in Christ, it's still in process. It's not complete yet. and it won't, it won't be complete until a day coming soon. I'm calling that salvation present. When you read these verses in Titus 2, it's clear that there is another salvation being, aspect of salvation being talked about for the believer in Christ that's still in process. It's not done yet. It's going on right now, and it will be for some time to come. Verse 11, as we've just seen, is the announcement that God's saving grace has appeared. It's been made visible to us in Jesus Christ. But as you keep reading, you see other purposes uh, of His coming beyond just the forgiveness of our sins. In particular, look at verse 12. It was, he came and He's training us, training, it appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. That is all the stuff we're called to right now. But it's something that we know from elsewhere in Scripture, Christ, through His Word and Spirit present with us now, is accomplishing in us right now. He's doing this work in us. 
He no, notice he he didn't say good luck, renounce all these things. No, he's training us to do that. He's training us through his word and spirit. It's not like it's because of Christ's works that we get in and it's now up to our works to stay in. No, it's Christ for us and in us. To put it another way, this is this is salvation present. We are we are right now being saved from the power of our sins. Just just because just because we, we can be completely saved from the penalty of our sins right now does not mean that sin no longer automatically has any power over us. Certainly we know that from experience. I know that from my own heart and mind. It's constantly influencing me. But Scripture teaches that every, every part of us has been affected by sin. When you hear somebody talk about, like if you ever hear somebody talk about total depravity, that's, that, that doesn't mean that anybody is as wicked and evil and sinful as they could possibly be. It's total in this sense. The totality of me has been affected by sin. Every aspect of me has been affected by sin. Our minds have been affected by sin so that we think evil thoughts. And if left to ourselves, only evil thoughts. That's what Genesis 6 says. Our hearts have been affected by sin so that we don't feel about things the way that we should feel about things. We, we, we love the wrong things. We are indifferent about things that we should be passionate about. We, we, that we should care deeply about. Our wills have been affected by sin so that we choose the wrong things. We make stupid, sinful choices. Um, and we, we don't always choose the good and the right. And often when we do choose the right and the good, there's an inner struggle in which we're tempted to do the wrong thing or do the right thing for the wrong reason. There's always a battle going on in us in order to choose and do the right thing. And our bodies have been affected by sin. It's not just my mind, will, and emotions. It's it's, it's my body, too. We grow old. It's why we get sick. It's, 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 it's why we're, we're weak. Every part of us has been affected by sin. And so when Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus saves his people to the uttermost and saves us completely, that means in addition to forgiving us of our sins, he remakes us over time after his own image saving us from the slavery to obeying our sinful desires in our daily lives. Look at, look at that list in Titus 2.12. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions so that we live self-controlled rather than uncontrolled, upright rather than uh, sinful, and godly lives as opposed to ungodly. I, it's indicating that we are by nature none of those things. By nature, we're not godly. And by, we're being trained to renounce those things that come most naturally to us. By nature, we're filled with ungodly passions and desires, and we're being trained to renounce them. By nature, we don't live self-controlled lives, and the list goes on. We're being trained as we abide daily in Christ to put to death our old self and to walk in newness of life. And know the, notice the language that Paul uses in verse 14 for what the Lord has done for us. After he says he gave himself for us, which we said was the first and foremost about the forgiveness of our sins, he goes on to say in verse 14 that it was also to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us and to make us people who are zealous for good works. That's what we're being and ought to be. It's not always a perfect trajectory but a, but a steady progress over time. It's going to have dips and, and, and foibles. But, I mean, like, we're, 
we, we're going to increasingly walk toward Christ in those ways through the, through the ordinary means of grace, of reading and studying His Word, prayerfully asking His help to walk in obedience to it, immersing yourself in the life of His church. Ordinary. God uses all of these ordinary things to do amazing things in your heart and mind which is saving us increasingly from the power of sin. That's salvation present. It's not complete yet, but it's moving toward the appointed goal of God for our salvation, which brings us to the last point here. We've talked about salvation past, being saved from the penalty. We've talked about salvation present, being saved from the power. You could probably tell me the last point. The verses also point to salvation future, which is going to be saved from the very presence of sin. Looking back at our passage... Notice the vantage point of the whole thing. He's talked about Jesus giving himself for us and the forgiveness that he's brought to us. He's talked about how right now uh, we are his by, by his grace in us, seeking to live increasingly godly lives and Christ-like lives, renouncing those things. But all the while, those two things are going on. All the while, look at ver- looking at verse 13, we are waiting For our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God has already appeared in the first coming of Jesus Christ to save us from the penalty of our sins. His Word and Spirit is with us now, increasingly working in us to to save us from the the, the power of our sins. But we're also waiting on His second physical advent to save us from the very presence of sin. Verse 14 says twice that Jesus did you notice that when we read it two times two times in verse 14 he says that he saved us for himself and for his own possession for himself for his own possession twice in the same verse you think that's trying to get our attention with that and and we're right now we are that we're we are his and we are his own possession right now if we're if we're repentant of our sins and, and trusting in him alone to be our savior but there's a day coming, the Bible tells us, in which we will be His people in a uniquely different way, in His physical presence. Jesus famously told His disciples in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself, that where I may be, you may be also. Ever thought about that? I'm going to prepare a place for you. When I was a kid, I remember thinking, what's he doing? Like, is he building something? Like, what kind of place is he preparing? It wasn't until a lot later that I think, when he said, it dawned on me, what chapter am I in? John 14. What's going to happen just a few chapters later? He's going to go to a cross. It's at the cross that he prepared the place for us. Like, he's not up there building my mansion. He, he prepared my place and He prepared your place as your substitute on His cross. When He rose, when he rose from the dead, the door was unlocked to it. And Revelation 21 tells us that when that day comes, that He comes to take you to Himself, that it's going to be a place, Revelation 21 says, where no sin, no evil will exist in you, outside of you, anywhere else. It's going to exist nowhere around us. Like... It's going to, even more amazingly, it is not going to exist in me at all. 
it's not going to even dawn on me to think a sinful thought. Like, maybe it's just because I know how sinful I am. That blows my mind. Like, in other words, the future of our salvation is going to be a place, in, a time in which we will save from the very presence of sin. I mean, we are, I am, I think we are, I know we are. The Bible says it. You may not want to admit it, but here it is. We are so beset by sin. We, we, we are still so corrupted by it. It's, it's hard even to imagine what that's going to be like. Like, and I think whatever you, if you, if, if you could imagine a world without any wickedness, without any deceit, without every good will be loved perfectly, every evil will be hated perfectly, every moment. If you could imagine what that would be like, if you could just imagine, really, what's that going to be like? However you imagine it, it's going to be greater than that. Because even your imagination stinks. And mine does too. Weakened by sin. But on that day, we're going to know by our own personal experience that we have been saved to the uttermost. To the uttermost. I, I really hope this Christmas uh, that you'll, you will think about it in view of the reminder of His second coming that is held out to us during these Advent weeks and realize all that was meant when those shepherds and, and those angels announced to those shepherds in the field that a Savior had been born. It's a salvation greater than we could ever imagine. It's held out to every undeserving sinner who repents and believes. Let's pray.